choke points. Let's go. Yes, we still see tents along sides of the freeways, but the state has made some progress in clearing some of the more dangerous camps. Chris, you have the latest numbers? And yes, this is from the Rights of Way Safety Initiative that the legislature started uh, in 2022. So we're just about two years into this project. And the goal was to remove homeless encampments from state properties along the freeways, where, of course, tents and 70 mile an hour traffic a few feet away is a very dangerous combination. The reason I, I took a look at the latest stats this week is because I just made my first trip through Olympia in a few months last week, visiting some family down in the Portland area for Christmas. And the Washington Department of Transportation had just started adding boulders to the north side of I-5 near the slater Kenny Road when I last went through in October. That's one of the things when they clear the camp in certain places, they put boulders to keep them from coming back. That homeless camp in that area in Olympia Lacey is, was massive. Uh, it not only took over the grassy areas for both the on and off ramps right there, but along the entire stretch of the freeway shoulder and really only about 12 feet from traffic. Really dangerous spot. That entire shoulder now is bouldered and the grassy area is cleared out and there's a no trespassing sign there. Uh, so I was really surprised at how how empty it looked. So compared it to, Yeah. And so I was like, OK, well. Let's see, that was one of the camps that has been cleared by the state that was part of this Rights Away initiative. And according to the latest data, there were 152 people at that camp there in the Olympia area. 130 of them accepted housing and help under this initiative, which, by the way, is now called the Encampment Resolution Program. Uh, that one kind of flew under the radar, uh, but again, that's the, the new name for this. And this camp is one of the largest tackled by the state so far. Only Camp Hope in Spokane which was that large RV lot uh, on DOT property that was really not uh, too close to the freeway. It was adjacent, but there was a uh, room there. Uh, and then the other one was, of course, I-5 and 405, or sorry, I-5 and I-90 here in the Seattle area. State's been working on 33 encampments in King, Pierce, Snohomish, Thurston, and Spokane counties. It has cleared 31 of them so far. Only the camps at the Smoky Point rest areas and a property in Thurston County remain on this initial list. Of the 1,630 30 people at those camps, all 31 of them, 1,068 have accepted housing. That's 65%. That's a pretty good, pretty good number. And of those who accepted the housing, 78% of them are still in some form of housing as they make their way through. Most of it is temporary housing. Only 8% have found something a little bit more permanent. So if you take a look at the numbers overall, about 51% of the total number of people in the 33 camps are still in housing. I'm not sure what, you know, what to make of that number. Uh, the, by the way, the legislature set aside $143 million for this program. 80 million of it has been used so far. Uh, for those 836 people still in housing, that breaks down to about $96,000 per person uh, in this program. And again, these numbers wow. only go through num uh, November. The final 2023 numbers should be out in a couple of weeks. But just kind of a snapshot that they have done a good job of clearing these camps. They've got a pretty decent number that accept housing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, the further you go down the list, fewer and fewer people are sticking in that housing and very few of them are finding something permanent. Now, the $96,000 per person figure, is that their figure? Or is that your figure? Well, that's just me doing do simple math. Yeah, just so doing math. So, right. So, <laughs> so is that a one-time payment? Because, I mean, people hear that, they say, 
heck, just give them money for rent. I mean, that would yeah, be... Yeah, I mean, that's... And again, that's the, the problem. When you look at a, at a, a project that is this kind of massive and oh, uh, far-reaching, you know, there's infrastructure stuff. They've got, you know, they got to find the, the... There's pay... You know, money goes yeah. to obviously cleaning and clearing and, and do, putting, uh, like, boulders in or things to keep people from moving back in. So there's a lot of costs on that. Then finding the house... And remember, the project... They have to find housing for these people before they can clear the camps. Right. That's kind of how they this project works. So, yeah, I mean, that, again, that ninety six thousand dollar mark probably includes a lot of a lot of things where it would be just easy to say, yeah, well, hey, why not just give them that and see what they do with it? Um, but I mean, that's kind of what the numbers break out to. And it's interesting they've only used you know sixty percent of the money so far in just under two years. So, yeah. and again, this is only five counties that they're working on. So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, if you drive up and down I-5, you'll notice a lot of the places that were really, really overrun are clear. Uh, you know, some of the popular places are coming back. I mean, we still see them at 45th and 50th and other places, but yeah, it was, it was really surprising when I drove through Olympia, just how much of a difference that it made. Cause it's, it was, it just seems so dangerous there. Cause there were no real barriers yeah, yeah. at all f- between them and the traffic. And that's just not safe for anyone. Well, really? That, of course, that's why that land is empty. Cause nobody really wants to be there. That's unsafe, that, but if you've got exactly. no place to go, that's where you end up. Yeah. So as again, we don't know how permanent uh, this is and there's still no, Real, uh, is there a benchmark or some kind of uh, forecast of how long it will take to basically get everyone housed? No, uh, because as we looked, I, I don't have the numbers offhand. But when I did this last time, it was, I mean, the, the number of camps on DOT property was in the you know thousand yeah. number across the entire state. Uh, so it's a huge problem. To, but they focused on the largest. I mean, the Camp Hope had like 470 people. Uh, and again, 150 at this one down in Olympia. Uh, there were 170 somewhat right there along what they consider I-90 and I-5, the CID. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they tackled the biggest first. And I, I mean, uh, it's kind of like the fish passage work, right? They've worked really hard on the real big ones mm-hmm. and then the further you go where there's 10 people five people it's really hard to get bang for your buck that far down the line yeah. but they're trying and i i think it's somewhat positive uh that the camps and that that some people you know the 78 percent of the people that took housing are still in it that's good in some way so i think that's it's okay to focus a little bit on the positive sometime even though it may not be a permanent solution i think they're doing i think this program is working <laughs> 637 with the University of Washington headed to the college football championship. Husky merchandise is some of the hottest swag around and not just here in Western Washington. Here's Car News Radio's Heather Bosch. In the middle of the afternoon, in the middle of the work week, I'll help you right here. I found busy cashiers moving shoppers quickly through long lines. And this is a short line compared to the other day. I got a sweatshirt and some sweats. I had to have a shirt. Well, you've got several items we've got, there. We've got lots of swag. Many of these longtime fans. A big, big fan. Big fan. <laughs> we leave tomorrow, so. You're going to Houston? Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. But some are the newly drafted. I live in Seattle for the longest time. I don't actually follow college football. That 
that is, Anita tells me, until she watched a University of Washington football game earlier this season and got hooked. I didn't know that college football could be so exciting. And if sales are any indication... I can take the next person in line. The Huskies are gaining fans across all 50 states. Chris Rawls is chief operating officer of the University Bookstore. The other day I was pulling orders, online orders, with my colleagues, and we were noticing these orders were coming from all over the country, not just from Washington, like most of our orders do. So, you know, we definitely have a lot of people across the country that are taking notice. It's almost impossible not to notice. And it's pump fake, and now launches a dart down to the end zone. A team with undeniable talent, chronically viewed as the underdog, but pulling off nail-biting wins. And Rawl says there's something else. You know, the Huskies, one thing about this team is that they will all pull together and give it that little extra effort and that extra push when it really matters. When they're in the crucible, they will come through for each other. The Husky faithful, snapping up t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and other purple and gold signs of support for this team, hoping the championship game, like their new merchandise, is in the bag. There you go. Enjoy the game. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. Right now we head down to the border in Texas, where the surge of migrants has Republicans and Democrats debating what to do next. I talk with CBS's correspondent down there, Omar Villafranca, who spent a lot of time at the border. Well, there's a lot of misconceptions. A lot of people think that there's hordes of people that are coming and running away from Customs and Border Patrol. It's the opposite. Um, they're literally going, uh, you have groups that will come over and cross, and they'll surrender to basically anyone in a uniform, but not everyone has the, uh, you know, the, the federal authority to process an asylum claim or do anything like that. So you do see large groups of people. And when they're in these small border communities, um, they don't have anywhere to put them. They don't have a processing center big enough. So if you have a group of maybe 2,000 that cross in a sector, which is a low number, in a day, then it becomes a problem. That's why you see in El Paso, you see people, once they're processed as quickly as they can, they end up sleeping on streets outside of churches and outside of, uh, you know, centers and shelters. Um, in Eagle Pass, they try to move them as quick as possible, but they had to set up a field, basically, and put dividers in between, gave them silver mylar blankets, and you have uh, women and children and, and, and other people just there waiting to be processed, waiting to be put on a bus to be taken to an, another building elsewhere to be processed. It's quite a sight to see. And why now? Why is this happening now? What are these people being told? Do they think that they're 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 coming here uh, to, to walk streets paved with gold, or what brings them here? I mean, depending on what country they're coming from, but what we're seeing right now is a lot of them are coming from Venezuela. And, and But Venezuela, Honduras, Colombia, and what we're seeing right now based on our data and interviews with, with people, not only on the American side, but in Central and South America, is we're seeing probably one of the largest migrations in the Western Hemisphere of people, probably that we've seen maybe almost ever. I mean, you, when you're talking about a mass of people who have to come from South America, Central America, pass through the Darien Gap in the jungle and come up through Mexico – um, they, when they call them caravans, yeah, they could be a caravan of, you know, six, eight, ten thousand people walking or maybe trying to, if they have a little bit of money on a bus, the smugglers are moving them up. Many of them pay smugglers uh, to basically escort them and get them through. And it's a treacherous journey. It, it's, it's deadly for a lot of them. A lot of them don't make it, either dying in the jungles or disease or killed on the way. So, it, you know, they're fleeing economic poverty. They are fleeing, you know, gangs. I've been to El Salvador where people are saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die here for sure. I'd better take a chance. 
and and make this journey up through through Central America and and Mexico and see if I make it and see if I can have a life in the U.S. Well, I've seen the pictures of the border, the razor wire, the wall. Would a bigger wall or more razor wire stop this? People are still going to come. It's, it's, it's how the U.S. reacts. The analogy that I've heard is a punch is coming. Where is it going to hit on the, on the southern border, and how hard is it going to hit on the southern border? So if people are fleeing, people are fleeing. It's w- w- what incentives? That's the argument people are making, and a lot of the local towns are, are saying, you know, are we incentivizing these people? Because once they come in um, and they're processed, they're being dispersed across the country. Yeah. Some of them are coming to family members that are spread all out through the U.S. Some in the Pacific Northwest, others are going to Denver. They're going to Chicago. Uh, they're going to New York. They're going to Florida. They're going where jobs are. And matter of fact, in El Paso, just late last year, I was told by uh, some county officials there that some states were even saying, hey, if you have a, a couple who are willing to come to North Dakota or South Dakota or Oklahoma, quietly, we have some jobs for them um, in the field that people do want. They want, you know, agricultural jobs. And then these people are willing to come and do it. That's illegal, though, right? It is, but it's also a reality. It is illegal, but it is a reality. To, to, to pretend that there's not an underground economy in the U.S. that, that, that people are legal, legally participating in would be blind to believe that. It is absolutely illegal. Drugs are illegal, too. We also know it's a problem in the U.S. Hearing from CBS's Omar Villafranca about the border crisis. So the big question is, what would help? Would it be better for the U.S. economy to find a legal way? to let in these migrants. Here's what Omar had to say. That is what we elect people in Washington, D.C. to decide and try. But again, talking to people down here who see it firsthand, um, it's probably been, what, 25, 30 years since any meaningful legislation has been passed on immigration. Um, and they're just waiting to see what will happen. A lot of them now are frustrated. When, when you have groups of politicians, regardless of party, coming down to see things, um, they at this point, many of them look at it as just a photo op because they know like an Eagle Pass. They're 1,700 miles away from Washington, D.C., where the decision is made. But in Washington, D.C., they're not really remembering maybe what they saw at the border because nothing has been passed recently. So people are frustrated at both parties. And it has become a political, uh, a political baton to beat your opponent on while people in the border communities are still waiting for something to happen. One more thing. At the uh, at the Republican event yesterday at the border, there was some talk about uh, how if uh, if they get uh, if Donald Trump gets elected, he'll go after those cartels. Would that stop it going after the cartels? It could. But we don't know until until, you know, something is done. Everybody has plans and proposals. The problem is putting rubber to the road and, and, and getting it done. And a lot of people in these border communities have heard fantastic rhetoric on both sides of the aisle of people saying what they're going to do when they're elected. And sometimes when they're elected, it doesn't happen. At this point, they're cautiously optimistic, but they're not holding their, their breath or bidding a mortgage payment that anything's going to happen soon. And, and they're not sure what the breaking point is for people in Washington, D.C., because in Eagle Pass, Texas, they say they're already past the breaking point. Mm. And one more thing. Should we be scared of them? There's talk that these refugees include uh, the Republicans, the criminals, uh, the terrorists, etc. Should we be frightened um, of the, these people? 
some, I mean, some of them are not properly vetted, that, and and the, the facts bear that out. Some are caught. Um, the majority that are coming through are, you know, I've had people on both sides. Some, yeah, these are not bad people, but they're not coming in through the proper channels. So, are there bad people coming through? I'm absolutely, and and government officials will tell you that. Um, but. You know, the argument I've heard when talking to some local officials say, being, listen, there can be anybody who flies in uh, and, 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 and comes in illegally or comes in legally and has bad intentions. So they assume also if somebody's been in illegally, they also may have bad intentions. They don't know. CBS's Omar Villafranca. Omar, thank you very much. Thank you. Your daily dose of kindness is brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Christmas came twice for an 11-year-old boy in Georgia. Rachel Aragon with CBS affiliate WANF-TV has that story. I knew in my heart I had to I had to do something. Lieutenant Matt Kennerly has taken on a lot of cases in his 20 plus years with the Carrollton Police Department, but this one was extra special. 11-year-old Braden received a brand new bicycle from his grandparents for Christmas. He rode it Christmas Eve and put it on his front porch that evening. Officers responded to the call about Braden's stolen bike Christmas morning. Hours after, they returned with a brand new bike for Braden. This 11-year-old boy just had his bicycle stolen, and that's no way to spend Christmas. So once we all started talking about it and everything, we knew we had to do something. But they didn't stop there. I also explained to Braden, you know, once we, we took him his new bicycle, over there and I said, I'm, we're not going to stop until we find your bicycle. Lieutenant Kennerly found it Tuesday morning. The bike, abandoned on the side of the road, is now in his police car. What, what is that? My bike. That's your bike? Is that it? What do you think? Thank you. You're welcome, buddy. You're welcome. You're welcome so much. Braden happy to be riding into the new year on his new set of wheels, while Lieutenant Kennerly is happy to have another case closed. Satisfaction in getting some closure on that and seeing somebody's happiness at the end of the day means the world to me. And Braden tells me he is grateful for the entire Carrollton Police Department for their dedication. Somehow the story's just mm-hmm. made better by a Georgia accent, don't You're you right. think? <laughs> yes, sir. And now, visiting from the Gian Ursula Show, here is G. Scott. So, have you uh, had time to evaluate the new Seattle City Council? I have. Bunch of new kids on the block. <laughs> you you sounded, like the, the, the times kids. I've heard you talk oh. about it, you sounded very excited. I, I, I am excited. And here's why. Um, a lot of the new council don't necessarily have a bunch of uh, experience in government, right? A lot of these folks are kind of new to the game. And so I think it's a new energy. I do like that they're coming in and they're look, their number one concern is public safety, mm. right? I think that if you ask anyone that lives in Seattle and they say, hey, what would be the problems here in Seattle? I'd imagine that the first three things that come up are public safety. So kudos to them. Number two, the next part of the things they're doing is they're making an effort to let it be known to SPD. They're like, yo, we got your back. You know, and I think that's important as well. What about Bob Kettle's uh, assertion that he can fix the police department in a year? What does that mean, fix it? First of all, I like Bob. Met Bob, rocked with Bob. Bob came in here and we interviewed him. Bob's a good dude. You know what I mean? 
Settle down now, Bob. Don't put. Don't start putting. Don't start putting time on it. You know what I mean? Like I, I said that on my show, Colleen. He's excited. We like excited council members. I love but it seems excitement. like a lofty goal to fix a police department in a year when the Justice Department. I mean, they've been under the watch of the Justice Department for how long now? Right. And I love what he had to say up until he put a time limit on mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in my relationships, uh, sometimes my, my wife says, when are you going to change? <laughs> Give me time. Give me time. But, Give well, me what time. did he say he was going to fix? The public image of them? The staffing issue? Like just, what is the? what does he want to fix? He just... Just basically give us time to, he was talking about, he brought in the public safety part of it too and mm-hmm. all of those concerns and, you know, hey, SPD to those out there, hey, just give us a year and we'll kind of, oh, you got to slow down on okay. the year part of things. Right. I think he wants to break with the previous council by saying, uh, yes, you can hold us accountable. We're going to make some actual promises. I, I sat down and had coffee with him. He's a former Navy guy and it's a... I think it's a get-it-done kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And you're right, it's dangerous for a politician to set a deadline because, you know, everything is recorded. But the fact that he had the chutzpah to go out there and do it, I think is his way of saying... Uh, there's a there's a new uh, new sheriff in town. I haven't been doing this as long as you guys, but I know how this game works. Because you know, a year from when he said that, there's going to be a headline. That's right. There's going to be an article that says, okay, here's where we are since you yep. said wait a year. I think he knows Here that. Here are the numbers. Right? Yeah. Good for him, right? What do you have to lose when you're new, right? And, and you're, <laughs> no, you're earnest but, and you haven't been tainted by politics yet. Yeah, he wants to get something done. But of everything that he said, and of everything right now, the council that you feel the energy that's coming out of there, I personally like it. Mm-hmm. I like that they are coming out there and giving an effort and letting it be known like, hey, we know what was the past. This is how things are going to rock going forward. And yes, public health, uh, public safety is a number one concern. I think anybody in Seattle that lives here can be okay with that. And like you said, Dave, they're basically saying, yeah, you know what? Hold us accountable for these things going forward. Yeah. I'd love I, to see G on a council. Don't you think he'd keep it real on the council? Oh, absolutely. No, no. It's, it's funny you say that. You probably haven't seen my Facebook, have you? No, I'm not on Facebook. See, I was just talking about yesterday. My post on my Facebook is about how keeping it too real yeah. can bite you mm-hmm. and, get, and get in trouble. Right now, I know you guys aren't paying attention to this, but Cat Williams had an interview with Shannon Sharp, and it's all over the internet right now. And he, in my opinion, kept it too real. And my dad, before he died, would always tell me, hey, champ, listen, I know you always want to keep it real, but champ, keeping it too real can get you in trouble. Sometimes you got to just chill a little bit. You can't say everything you want to say. Like if Colleen, if I ask you on the air, hey, so how was your morning? I don't. You can't keep it too real. No, I don't think I'd have a job if I kept it real all the time. (laughs) This is good to know, though, because I thought that uh, I should be keeping it real. But now the concept of keeping it too real is something I'm going to have to study. Dave, I just want you to know. Mm-hmm. What I have learned from you since I have been working here. What's that? Sometimes you just got to just chill out and lay back. Because <laughs> you're the master, Dave. Of putting his headphones on and minding his business. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, yes a great example is. for all yeah. of us. And, and, and not every fight is there to be won. That's yeah. right. All right. Yeah. G. Scott with Ursula. 46 and, years? Is Ursula in today? 46. No, she's not. 46. No, she, uh, uh, Mike Lewis is in. Mike Lewis is in. 46 today. years, Dave? Yeah. G. Scott with. Uh, yeah. That's what my watch says. Ten of them next to a prize fighter, so you can imagine (laughs) his stress.
And that is Mickey time. Mickey Gomez is here, and we're going to talk uh, ferries. The latest ferry to have an issue is the Guaymas Island vessel, which is out of commission for repairs. And there's mm-hmm. there are not many uh, options for uh, Guaymas Islanders, are there? No, there's not, because you can only get on and off via ferry. And it's not the state ferries. It's a completely the different... Skagit County Ferry. Right, yeah. exactly. It's Skagit County Ferry. And so I was uh, chatting, we were chatting with the uh, fire chief, Olivia Cole, who, by the way, she is like the first woman fire chief in Skagit County. Oh, go her. That was really wow. cool to Amazing. actually speak with her. And and she said that a lot of the people who live on Guimas Island understand this, that when you live on an island, you know that there are going to be issues and that the ferry is going to be out. So a lot of people prepare. They have at least two months worth of food and water in their pantry. But the new people who have moved there uh, and moved there during the pandemic are the ones who are kind of causing a bit of a ruckus and saying, Saying, hey, this isn't right. This isn't, you know, what the heck is going on? We didn't think it was going to be this way. So if <laughs> they moved to an island. Right. And then, hey. Well, they thought there was going to be adequate transportation. When there's but, yeah. one way off the island. <laughs> well, on. so right now what, what they're using is the uh, passenger only ferry. They have a vehicle ferry, but that one is out for the moment. And so what's really cool is that uh, barges from San Juan Marine Freight and Services have been kind of filling in, not, um, and they haven't been filling in uh, permanently, or it, it was just something that kind of accidentally happened, according to uh, Captain Corey Joyce. He says he got a couple of calls from some people, like, hey, I really need to get off the island. I've got a couple of appointments. Can you do it? And he said, yeah, for 50 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's why the states ended up taking over the ferry system, because it's just too expensive not to, to subsidize it. Right. So there you go. Yeah. That's the vision of what that, that's what's next for the rest of us, right? Unless we uh, get some more ferries in. I know. Well, Where's, well, where, where are we on that? Where, Mickey, where are we on 2028. So 2028. From maybe getting our first boat? Maybe, I said. Just maybe. Maybe, yeah, maybe. maybe our first new boat. Yeah. Now, the Wenatchee maybe. is a hybrid. And so that is being worked on right now. And Washington State Ferry says it's going to be ready uh, this coming summer. And so it's being retrofitted to, yeah. to be hybrid electric. Uh, okay. So it's been out of commission to do that. One at a time. But, yeah. but. The new ferry boats, the electric ferry boats, yeah, maybe 2028, 2029. So until then, you know, we're going to have to, like, rely on the community and and rely on, on you know, uh, people who, who yeah. will, out of the kindness well, of their heart, come and, and take you off an island and bring you onto the mainland. I know a lot of families, well, I don't know a lot of families with boats, but I know some families, anybody who owns a boat, they always mm-hmm. come to this conclusion that it's too expensive, right? They have to dry dock it. They have to repairs and the fuel and all that stuff. They go, oh, it's so fun being a boat owner for about two seasons. Yeah, and then they go, right. how do I say how about turn it into a money-making venture? Ferry people from the islands well, to they can catch an Uber, whatever they want. They can't do that. Can't Coast do Guard that. won't let them. Right? What? You got. You have no. to be Coast oh. Guard certified. And and the hurdles there. I did that on why not do something across Lake Washington, bring back this mosquito fleet. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you got to carry like a million dollars worth of insurance for liability. Here's who's going to win the next governorship: the governor to say, "I promise to change the laws to allow commuters." To help us out until the ferry system. Th- that's got to come from D.C. 
It's got to come from D. Oh, that's right. It's the Coast it's, Guard. Yeah, it's it's the Coast Guard right. that prevents that from but happening. Aren't these routes consider, they're considered federal highways or state highways? Well, no, but the Coast Guard manages who could run their own personal own thing. Yeah, you can't just start Puget a water truck. No, no, right. you can't because you need to have the insurance, you need to have the inspections, and you have a need to have minimal crew however, on your boat. So. I mean, however, who's going to catch you if you're doing on the DL? Fri- the Coast Guard. Make <laughs> friends with a boat yes. owner. That's what I'm saying. Make friends make with a boat owner. Make friends with somebody who owns a boat. Now, if you're not charging for it, there you go. Now that's right. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Well, but you, know, you could treat someone to dinner once in a while. Yeah, sure, sure. No law against that. Yeah. But, but the gas alone, the gas alone. Like, yeah. listen, Captain. Uh, so, Captain Corey Joyce said to us because I asked him because I went to the website to go find out. I mean, he's on the up and up. He's got all of the permits. He's Coast Guard certified. And mm-hmm. I said, "Why do you charge so much?" He goes, "Yeah, my services are expensive." He goes, "It costs." Diesel fuel costs so much money, and it's going to cost me two hundred dollars just to back away. He's got a huge from freight the, vessel. Well, he's well, he's got a barge. He a owns barge. two of them. See, this is yes. a smaller boats. Pay for the fuel. They'll get you across the island for fifty dollars. No, I mean, for fifty dollars. Yeah, the government makes it way too hard. Well, what's really interesting is that I mean, they, they clearly need they clearly need this service because he says that his barge has moved close to one hundred and twenty cars and trucks off the island and back since last week. Wow. And this is kind of a cool story. I thought it was cute really quickly. He said that he got a call during Monday night's Husky game Mm -hmm. and he wasn't going to look at his phone. He was like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then he looked at it and it was a mom on Guimas Island who had a very sick daughter who needed to get off the island and he was there he was there faster than a, than he said a fairy could Good be there, him. and he did it. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Mickey Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. Did he charge You're welcome. Them? Real time. I'm sure he did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the gas is gas. Man. Fifty dollars there and yeah. back. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.